Welcome everyone to Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. <clears throat> I'm your host, Carter Laren. Uh, I apologize, I'm still suffering a little bit from the repercussions of the coof. So I will pause to drink water and uh, cough once in a while. <clears throat> anyway, this is a series here on Unsafe Space uh, that we do almost every Wednesday evening, mostly every Wednesday evening, um, in which we focus on defending individual sovereignty using reason. Um, <clears throat> I like to think of it more as kind of a street philosophy uh, <clears throat> rather than the navel-gazing philosophy of ivory tower intellectuals. I think a lot of thinkers, uh, I was, I've been thinking about this recently, I think a lot of thinkers confuse useful psychological observations and helpful metaphors for psychology with philosophy. Um, <clears throat> so they end up sitting around debating things like whether the self exists or they get hung up on the fact that consciousness has trouble being conscious of itself. None of that is philosophy. That's just navel-gazing stupidity. For us, philosophy is about living here on Earth. We know the self does exist. Things exist. Reality is real. Um, and we don't get caught up in, in psychological and uh, metaphorical philosophy, which is, like I said, basically just kind of navel-gazing. So, um, you know, look, Rome is burning here, and uh, we're here to either either put out the fire or more likely save the important people, important ideas, important stuff, and go build something else. So that's what this show is about. <clears throat> um, on today's show, uh, you know, I always, I often say the show will be short, and then it's not short. So I don't know. I, I thought it's going to be a short show, but I shouldn't say that anymore. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to focus on... Well, I promised I would focus on Davos uh, a few weeks ago. There was the, the annual Davos conference, and I said, hey, do you want me to watch some videos and fill you guys in on some stuff? And uh, we're going to focus on on some stuff about that today. Actually, I forgot to turn this fan off. It is probably making background noise, so hold on for a second. It's kind of it's hot here today. All right. Uh, but before we focus on Davos, uh, I want to quickly talk about the new uh, gun safety bill that is circulating the halls of Congress, kind of like human waste circles the toilet bowl. Uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, the rest of us in America are, and even some of people outside of America are downstream from the sewer that is DC. <clears throat> First, if you are new to unsafe space, welcome. Uh, in addition to this show, which is, you know, just boring old me talking, uh, we have lots of other episodes, lots of other series. Uh, we Earlier today, we had an episode of Rebel Civics, which was a little bit of a special one. Um, Rebel Civics is typically a uh, a show hosted by Keith Bissett, which is also on Wednesdays, usually in the afternoon, about um, the relationship between individuals and the government and obviously civics-focused. Uh, today, he had a kind of a cool show where Thomas St. Thomas, who's one of our writers, actually wrote a book, uh, a children's book, about Thomas Sowell's life as a child. And uh, he read, it's a short episode, he read his children's book. I, I recommend going and checking that episode out today. It's called Tommy Goes to Harlem. Um, on Tuesdays, we have 451 Degrees with Alex Maselli. She hosts that show. It's about censorship. Yesterday, she spoke to Dave Seminara, I think is how you pronounce his name. He was canceled from Goodreads, so she had a conversation with him about that. On Mondays, we have a show called Live, uh, sorry, Narrative Dissonance, which is live. Um, that's at 2 p.m. Pacific, and usually we have a panel of journalists or other internet um, personalities to talk about 
the news, how we're being lied to by mainstream media, that kind of thing. And then Thursday evenings, we have Token Minority Report, which is hosted by Beverly and Alex. It's more of a fun, uh, nerdy pop culture kind of thing. Sometimes I pop into that, but not usually. Usually it's just the two of them. Uh, and then once in a while, we have something called Free Association, where I just interview uh, interesting people. We don't have one this week, but we've uh, recently we spoke to Scott Horton, um, Axel Kaiser, um, lots of lots of interesting people. So you can check some of those out. Okay. Oh, one last note. I'm supposed to remind people. Keith is at Porkfest uh, this week. In fact, I think probably a couple hours ago he gave a talk called Secession 101. So I guess I shouldn't advertise that because it's two hours old. Uh, so there you go. <clears throat> Also, before we start, uh, please think of someone that you haven't shared on Safe Space content with. Go do that now. Make sure you're subscribed. We're on Utreon, Odyssey, Rumble. Unsafespace.com is the best place to find us. Um, you know, support us financially. I hate, I hate like advertising and saying support us financially. But you know, if you want, if you want to help defend Western civilization and you like the content, any of the content, please do support us. You can get yourself onto the Discord server and. Your name and credits, and maybe some fake ordinance, uh, depending on your level of support. Okay, shout out to everyone in chat. Welcome, thank you for starting to fill out the uh, the poll. I've got a poll in chat, in chat about conservatives, so we'll see how that ends. Uh, if you want to want to go look at it, go look at it. All right, let's let's start with a quick rev quick review of this uh, bowel movement that the Senate is intent on passing. <clears throat> yes, that was an intended pun. Um, oh, actually, before we do that, let's just take a moment to check in on the January 6th primetime special that's been running. Let's just take a look at it here. Hmm. All right, on Rotten Tomatoes here, we have... The tomato meter says 99%, so the critics love the January 6th hearings. Excellent. Uh, audience score, though, 11. So not working for the audience. But hey, since when has Congress worked for the audience? All right. Let's let's get into this. Uh, let's get into this. Uh, we'll quick, quickly review it. I'm not going to read the bill. I am gonna, I've got a, an article about the bill because the bill is 80 pages and annoying to read. I did skim the 80 pages, but it's not easy to pull stuff out of it. So, um, all right. This is, <laughs> I love these titles. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act is the short title. Uh, the subtitle of this, the main thing says, a bill to make our communities safer. So I thought, you know, is this going to be helicopter rides for Antifa? But no. No, that's not what it is. Um, <clears throat> this is an NPR article. I'll just read. The Senate has begun consideration of a narrow bipartisan gun safety bill that could become the first gun control measure to pass Congress in decades. By the way, they think this is going to be passed by the end of this week, which is why I want to address it now. The legislation resulted from negotiations among 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats that began after two mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas. That happened less than a week apart last month. It is expected to have more than enough votes to overcome the 60-vote threshold to clear a filibuster in the Senate, which is divided 50-50, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm skipping. <clears throat> Here we go, the lovely Republicans. And by the way, 
there's a picture of Chuck Schumer talking about this bill, and I it's like it's like he intentionally tries to look evil. He's like looking down like this, and he's got this like shit eating grin on, and like this evil smirk. It's it's creepy. Anyway, Senate majority Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat New York, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican Kentucky, have both announced support for the bill and both say they will vote for it. Thanks, Mitch McConnell. <clears throat> Let's read. Let's read a Mitch McConnell quote. I, by the way, I'm so it's so weird to sit back on the sidelines and watch. You watch Republicans like hate on Mitch McConnell, and then like in the next breath, he does something they like, and they're like, "Yeah, cocaine, Mitch. Mitch is awesome." Like he's not both. He sucks. He just sometimes does stuff that you happen to like. All right, here's his quote: "Our colleagues have put together a common sense." There's a trigger word. Common sense package of popular steps. Oh, good. Common sense and popular. Nothing principled. Uh, that will help make these horrifying incidents less likely while fully upholding the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, by the way, you know, so this is this is what prompted this poll um, that I have in chat. Conservative. I, look, guys, conservatives suck. Stop, stop thinking that conservatives are helpful. Michael Malice's quote that I really love is conservatives are progressives driving the speed limit. But sometimes I think he's too generous with that quote. Um, they just, they just blow chunks, really. And I, and I'm not into politics normally, but I did just join after 25 years of refusing to join the Libertarian Party. I finally just joined the Libertarian Party um, because the Mises Caucus took over. And, uh, you know, I'm still focused on not politics, but uh, <clears throat> I'm hoping that maybe the Libertarian Party will cease to be a joke now that the Mises Caucus is in. I don't know. We'll see. Um, all right. Bunch of senators spent days trying to finish this, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> the senator said in a joint statement, here we go. I don't know if this infuriates you as much as it infuriates me. I hate this is a <clears throat> this is a red flag. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to when someone does the evaluation for you and tells you the conclusion. Here's the joint statement from these douchebag senators. Our legislation will save lives and will not infringe on any law-abiding American Second Amendment rights. Oh, OK, thanks for that legal analysis, guys. I appreciate it. <clears throat> oh, hey, Judge Lot. Judge Lot is uh, given. Let's pause. Judge Lot gave us a super chat. We will. Uh, I gotta let me figure out how to put it up. Hold on. There we go. It says uh, it's twenty bucks. Thank you, Judge Lot. He says a writer for Reason believes conservative opposition to drag queen shows for children is a bigger problem than drag queen shows for children. Of course, of course. Reason also sucks, by the way. What a what a horribly named magazine. Michael Malice calls Reason the Southern Poverty Law Center of Libertarianism. He's right. I love Michael Malice. Uh, yeah. Um, reason, uh, the problem, the historical, not to go on a tangent here, but I'm going to go on a tangent. The historical problem with libertarians is the same as the historical problem with conservatives, which is a lack of principles. Um, libertarians uh, generally have this idea that like smaller government is good, which which they're right about, but they don't know why. And they don't really um, they don't really have an understanding 
as a party, like generally, of the philosophy of, of individual sovereignty and the philosophy that supports uh, <clears throat> libertarianism. So you get kind of these weird, you know, they easily fell to woke arguments um, because they didn't have the philosophical foundation. Um, and even some people with philosophical foundations, or at least you would hope that they had, like a lot of the the ARI objectivists also fell to woke arguments um, because they they don't know how to think. These people are uh, parroting someone else's ideas and they don't really understand, uh, <clears throat> you know, the foundation for the ideas that they're parroting. The libertarians have been guilty of that for my entire life. I have a sense that the Mises Caucus is a little bit different. Um, which is why I'm now a member of the Libertarian Party. We'll see. Um, it's not like I'm going to go run for office tomorrow, but uh, but I have a good feeling. I like the Mises Caucus people. So, <clears throat> all right. We won't go through this whole stupid bill, <clears throat> but we will just say we'll pull out some key points. Um, <clears throat> the bill would expand background checks. For prospective gun buyers between the ages of 18 and 21, the new process was would incentivize states. I'm not sure how. I tried to look for how it incentivizes states to do this. Usually when they incentivize, it's with penalties or money. So the new process would incentivize states to provide access to previously sealed juvenile records and could add several days to the waiting period for a purchase before a purchase can be completed. Now, my question here is like, why 21? Why not 25? Why not 35? Why not 65? I mean, or do we have a – is there a thing where when you turn 18, you are suddenly responsible enough to be handed, uh, handed a weapon or the controls to a drone and make life and death decisions in war uh, or pseudo-war? Everything's a conflict. That's not, not – we don't have any legal wars, but whatever – authorized conflicts you're allowed to go kill people and um and theoretically defend <laughs> truth justice in the american way or whatever but that's not really what's happening um you have you're you're competent enough to do that we we can give you a stealth bomber we can uh give you access to drones we can give you weaponry we can have you make life and death decisions but <clears throat> you're unable to purchase a weapon and also you can't have alcohol that's very important um, it just, just, it just makes no sense. Also, by the way, um, when you're 18, <clears throat> you're able to make decisions about voting. You're able to vote. So you're able to decide whether communists should rule us, uh, or Thomas Jefferson should be elected. Those are the decisions you're entrusted with much more important than whether you're, you should be able to buy a rifle. But of course, Buying a rifle, <clears throat> I guess now it's in a different category. So there's no principle here, obviously. Um, I'm going to skip. This kind of goes on. The legislation includes a 70, $750 million in grants meant to encourage states to create so-called red flag laws that would allow law enforcement or other entities to petition a court to remove guns from a person deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. Now, obviously, look, red flag laws are a violation of due process. Um, they are absolutely a violation of your Second Amendment uh, rights. <clears throat> but we don't care because <laughs> we're Republicans <laughs> and we have no principles. So 
So yeah, they're going to do that. Now that is, again, this is a, I'm going to say this and people are going to say, you're being hyperbolic and this won't happen and blah, 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 you're being paranoid. You know what? I've heard that for 20 years and I'm always freaking right. It happens. Later it, ha it happens. Eventually it happens. Here's what this will be used for. They will punish wrong thinkers. The end. They will punish wrong thinkers. Wrong thinkers will be considered uh, look, they're already using language like harmful, hateful speech. Your speech is violent, blah, blah, blah. They'll eventually this will become a, well, he says mean, he has mean memes. He tweets nasty things that are quote violent. Therefore he is a, an unstable person and we can take firearms from him. Uh, How how anyone doesn't see that? I think it's only willful blindness that you can't see that. That's where this goes. Um, <laughs> Greg the Baritone says, Carter, it seems like my choices for elections these days are between communist or Christian Sharia law. Yeah, <clears throat> those are your choices. Uh, neither of which have anything to do with the value of Western civilization, mind you. Um, <clears throat> all right. There's more crap. There's just more. There's more. So the big things in this bill are the background check thing, uh, the red flag laws, and then a whole bunch of money for um, a whole bunch of mo money from you. I mean, just to be like this comes from your pocketbook eventually, you know, ultimately. But uh, money for creation of federal clearinghouse on school safety standards. Hundred or sorry, a billion dollars for school improvement programs intended to increase attendance and engagement. A uh, billion dollars for safe school and citizenship education with 500 million set aside for school-based mental health grants and 500 million for grants to mental health professionals. By the way, <laughs> how much you guys want to bet some of that money is going to be used for transitioning kids to different genders? <laughs> mental health grants. <laughs> uh, $28 million for school-based trauma support. <clears throat> 80 million for pediatric rapid care, 60 million in mental health training for pediatricians, 50, which probably will include some trans crap, uh, 50 million in grants for school-based mental health through the Children's Health Insurance Program, 150 million for suicide crisis hotline, and $250 million for community mental health. Now, look, I'm not opposed to worrying about mental health. I am opposed to using federal funds because um, federal funds come with strings and it's not their money. Uh, so... Yeah, communities should worry about mental health. But look, it's a cluster. This this bill, it's going to pass because Republicans have no – well, I'm not sure what the issue is with Republicans. We, I have my own opinion, but I won't say what it is. We've got a poll. The poll is conservatives. I could have just as easily written Republicans because conservative means – like Republican – like the ideal Republican is a conservative basically, right? Uh, so uh, it, my the poll says conservatives – uh, a, lose because they're incompetent, B, lose because they're unprincipled, C, do a fine job, and D, are controlled opposition. So far, 10% of you think that conservatives do a fine job. I guess they could be doing a fine job as controlled opposition, uh, which is half of you think it's – okay. We'll let that poll keep going. <clears throat> Let's get into this Davos crap. I had this fantasy that I would – watch a whole bunch of Davos videos. And then I would summarize some Davos stuff and I'd have to look for some, some things to talk about. I ended up watching just a few Davos videos. 
And um, I ran across one that stopped me. Uh, it was called Unlocking the Social Economy. And it was moderated by Karen Tso, who is uh, a CNBC reporter. She does Squawk Box in Europe. And it featured a guy named Margaritas Chinas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He's the vice president of the European Commission, which is the executive branch of the EU. Sharon Throne, yes, Throne, uh, who sits in the throne, uh, the chair of the Deloitte Global Board of Directors. Uh, and Jeru Bilamoria, who's an Indian social entrepreneur and founder of several international NGOs. <clears throat> and at the beginning of this panel, <clears throat> the moderator mentioned this report that she recommended we all read. And it was called, it is called, <clears throat> Unlocking, this, here's, here's a picture of it. I don't know if you guys can see here. Unlocking the social economy toward an inclusive and resilient society. And of course, you got a nice, if you can't tell, nice little POC picture on the front. There you go. You got your token person of color in the front. <clears throat> it's, it's done in collaboration with Deloitte, of course, because Deloitte. Now, this report, it's not that long. It's 40-something uh, pages. You know, I've, I've actually hired Deloitte in my in my past to do reports and you know this is probably i would have paid for something this length in the tens of thousands this is probably in the hundreds of thousands because they can charge more to these kind of organizations plus there's been inflation since i did this so you know deloitte you know but that's not the reason deloitte that's not the reason they did this this pushes an agenda for them so i thought i gotta read this paper uh <clears throat> because frankly i saw this and i wasn't sure what a social economy was. I mean, I've heard the term social entrepreneurship and I kind of vaguely had a sense of what it was being in Silicon Valley for so long. And, and I've like, talked to people who were social entrepreneurs and making B corporations and, and that kind of stuff. But I, I wasn't sure what their definition, like what do they mean by the social economy? What is their definition? What is this, how does this play into the world economic forums uh, agenda? What are they really talking about? So I read this paper. And we're going to, what we're going to do today, instead of going through a bunch of videos, I'm going to talk about this paper. But before I do, um, I need to give you guys a little bit of history here. Uh, because I think sometimes people look at something like the World Economic Forum and they think this is kind of coming out of nowhere. There's these lizard people that suddenly want to take over society. And... It's not coming out of nowhere. These people have been around forever, uh, as long as humans have been around. Prior to the American Revolution, and you could maybe argue prior to you know uh, the 17th century and some of the Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke, prior to, to this time, geographical areas were ruled by monarchs. We know this. this is, I'm not teaching anything that you don't know. Um, and... Obviously, each culture had a different way of dividing groups and looking at things. But one one way to look at this, and I, I like this, um, I like this uh, example because it's European, it's common, it's very well known, and I think it uh, is is very broadly applicable to a lot of Western 
cultures prior to the Enlightenment. Um, if you look at France, France divided their population into three orders, three groups. Um, they called them the estates. Uh, the first group was the nobility. Nobility obviously had an economic advantage, a lot of economic advantages, land ownership advantages, tax advantages, didn't have to pay a bunch of stuff. Like they got a lot of advantages. They were also responsible for waging war. <clears throat> that was the nobility class. But in the, and they were also involved in, in governance. Um, they, uh, they, they, were, they advised the king, often made a lot of executive, uh, lower level executive decisions for the king, and the king cared about uh, the nobility. So the nobility is kind of wrapped up in that. Uh, monarch class. And that's the first state, the first order in France. The second order was the clergy. Now the clergy, uh, they had fewer economic advantages, but still some economic advantages over everyone else. And they clearly had a lot of power and their primary responsibility culturally was morally justifying the minority, the monarchy. Um, they would, would, they were the ones who would make arguments about a, about the divine right of Kings generally, and B about this King specifically being chosen by God. So they, they were the ones that gave moral, uh, backing to the status quo political structure of a monarch. <clears throat> and everyone else, all of us, right? Everyone else is the third estate. Uh, <clears throat> and we're responsible for the majority of actual productive work, right? Like actually growing food, <laughs> um, actually building things, uh, actually you know, doing blacksmith work, like actual work, things that actually improve human lives is the third estate, right? Real productive work. That's the third estate. And the third estate was obviously historically treated as tax cattle, right? They were, uh, they had this productive labor. The, the, especially the first estate, but also to some extent the clergy, uh, but the, especially the first estate wanted them to be productive um, so that they could forcefully buy, you know, not guns usually, but swords, uh, so they could forcefully steal their production and give it to themselves and the king and use it to wage wars and, and whatever else they wanted to do. And of course the clergy liked getting some so they could build some cathedrals and secret tunnels to go have affairs with mistresses and all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, the third estate has always been the largest number uh, and the actual productive element of society. But they are also at the bottom of the hill. The shit rolls down, excuse my language, the shit rolls down the hill to the third estate. They are subject to the, the force of the first estate under the moral justification of the second estate. And of course, in, in, in France, one of the, you know, in, in, the, <clears throat> in the French Revolution, one of the, the, the triggers was this, they decided to have a meeting of all three estates and a bunch of people from, a bunch of people decided that they represented the third estate basically. And, and uh, you saw a little bit of what you might call communism, but, um, that kind of same attitude of I represent the third estate and therefore, and we're the majority. So we're going to dictate blah, 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 blah. 
<clears throat> and you know you had the reign of terror and 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 a lot to mess we're not going to get into the french revolution but obviously that fell apart and eventually you had napoleon you ended up kind of back where you started uh nobility class and clergy class weren't exactly the same as they were prior to the french revolution but <clears throat> but that's a way that's a structure that you should use to think about society especially western society prior to the american revolution uh and and the enlightenment now in the enlightenment this is you know 100 years or so before the american revolution john locke comes along and what does he say he says well there's no divine right of kings <laughs> Ooh, ouch that stings um and along comes the enlightenment here and, th and there's and there's a lot of diverse thoughts um, I mean, some people consider Marx part of the Enlightenment. What I, when I say Enlightenment, I mean the individualist. Uh, uh, I, I don't mean Enlightenment just in a uh, particular time period, but particular ideas, right? Uh, individualism, natural rights, uh, this destruction of the divine right of kings, <clears throat> this idea that there aren't different classes of humanity fundamentally. You're not born better than someone else. Um, and this allows obviously for economic and social mobility. If, if the same natural rights apply to everyone, you kind of, you get this individual sovereignty concept and you get this concept that the primary role of government is to secure those rights for everyone equally. Um, and that's what's meant by equality, not equality of outcome or anything else, but equal securing of the rights. And I've, obviously the product of this thought the primary product of this thought, the most important, substantial, and consequential product of this thought, and most successful, was the American Revolution. This turned that, if you think about it in those terms, if you if you think about that for thousands of years, you had this class of, you know, slightly different maybe in each society, but you had a, basically a class of nobility and clergy managing the tax farm of the productive peons this American revolution was, was quite profound. It was quite different. Um, and it threatens, did threaten, uh, maybe less so now, but it threatened, uh, the status quo and it, and it threatened the position of a lot of those managerial class people. Now, <clears throat> the true children of the enlightenment at this point, these people who recognize individual sovereignty, they their response was, hey, we've thrown off the yoke of this political class. They can be ignored. They've got a little power, but we only gave them enough power to make sure that uh, <clears throat> to try and protect individual sovereignty equally, right? Um, so let's go build things and make our lives better. And, you, you know, you have um, the Industrial Revolution starting just prior to the American Revolution and then lasting for a while after the American Revolution, and you have this massive amount of productivity as people are basically feeling they can mostly ignore the government and they can be free to do uh, what they do best, which is be productive. But of course, what does this mean for that clergy and nobility class? And again, I'm not saying in America there was a nobility and clergy, but if you think about this generally from that class of people culturally in, in Europe and beyond, um, for them, Suddenly, the their primary role, right, is this management of the third estate, right? It's this uh, their skill set is political. It's Machiavellian, right? That's their skill set. 
Uh, they can manipulate and do politics and manage. That's what they do, right? Uh, that role is obsolete. America is proposing that that role is obsolete. And in America, if you want to manage people, the best you can do early on, I mean, now things are different, but the best you could do is, well, you could manage people on a somewhat small scale, even if you became a robber baron, it's only a company, the company's not that big compared to the, the nation, right? So you can manage people on a small scale, but even then it's voluntary. People don't have to work for you. They can leave. You can't use force to keep them working for you. If they say, I don't like working for you, then they can leave. Right. So you have to be a good enough manager that people voluntarily want to work for you. Um, and that was not the skill set of, of the nobility clergy class. This is not the skill set of these these Machiavellian political class people. <clears throat> um, and this belief, this belief that that third estate needs to be managed, that we need to be managed by our superiors, that belief never went away. Right. America uh, tried to abolish it and and mostly did for a time within our borders. But of course, we don't live in isolation. Uh, we're not on a different planet with no communication. It wasn't really ever abolished in much of Europe and much of the world. And the ideas uh, festered in various places in the U.S., which we'll talk about in a minute. So these these I'm calling them the first two estates again. I'm just using this generally the nobility and clergy it doesn't have to actually be nobility and clergy but people who fancied themselves as this managerial class needed to reinvent a justification for their status they wanted their economic status back and their political power back and having to go fight it out with the riffraff having to go build companies and be productive with the riffraff and try and get some kind of power which at its best pales in comparison to the power they had when they were an extension of the king that's not satisfying. So as a result of all of this, and we're not, I won't go into the, the, the too many details here, but as, as a result of all this, you get the progressives of the 18th century, the late 18th century, or I guess 19th century, sorry, um, late 1800s. Now, the word progressive is a, is a marketing term. There's no progress involved in being progressive. They were never moral, right? You hear people saying, well, the progressives used to be great, but no, no, no. They were never moral, ever. Never, ever, ever, ever were they moral. From their very beginning, they were immoral. They were always anti-individualist, always, always, always. On principle, they were anti-individualist. They were this class of people that we're talking about, this managerial class. Now, of course, sometimes they would adopt individualist sounding causes like free speech, but only when that suits their needs, only when it, you know, would would have some short term uh, <clears throat> byproduct that they think would help them. And you can see, you know, a lot of people who thought that that's what progressives were about are confused that the left doesn't support free speech anymore. It's because they they don't need it anymore. They're in power. Um but we need to look at the purpose of progressivism. It was decidedly not to further individualism. In fact, it was anti-individualism. It was fundamentally anti-laissez-faire. Now, a lot of people have this bad view of laissez-faire. It sounds radical. But look, laissez-faire literally just means leave alone, right? So this idea that you could have an economy based on leave us alone – 
freaked them out, right? If you're the managerial class, anything but that. We're the first estate. We want to be the nobles. What do you mean? Leave you alone. We can't. All we do is meddle. That's what we do. We're the managers. You're the stupid third estate riffraff. We can't live in a world of laissez-faire because that's where we have to leave you alone. And that's not okay. So the two major premises um, regarding laissez-faire that the progressives in the late uh, 1800s held were one, that, that, that laissez-faire economics was outmoded. I don't know what the hell that means, but, you know, they use these, well, that's old. Okay. You know, so is gravity, but still important, right? It's outmoded. Um, and so what they did was they <clears throat> they started to establish expert, fields of expertise. So they established economics as an academic discipline in universities. Remember, they largely controlled the humanities departments in universities. So, um, <clears throat> and they built credentials around things like economics. Um, so that they could be viewed as experts in these things. So instead of economics being something that business people and regular people could talk about because it was their personal economics or whatever, and and the and the macroeconomics were left left alone, laissez-faire. They were the macroeconomics were left alone to work themselves out and and let the power of voluntary interaction between people control the overall status. Instead of that, they had to develop entire theories of managing economies. And they had to develop credentials so that they could be considered experts in this. I'm going to quote from a book called Illiberal Reformers about this. It's a great book. Maybe we should do it for book club. I don't think we picked the – I think I was supposed to have picked the next book for book club, but I don't think we announced it. So maybe I should do this one. Um, okay. The progressives gave us the professor of social science, the scholar, the scholar activist, the social worker, the muckraking journalist, and the economic expert advising or serving in government. Right? So they said, hey, this lazy affair stuff, leaving you alone is outmoded economically. They also said it's unethical. And what they did was they saw any problems with society, any issues that were going on, child labor or whatever. They blamed those on the free market without any historical context, right? Charles Dickens, um, as much as I think he is a very was a very talented writer, um, I think he was a, uh, a propagandist. He um, he bemoaned poor working conditions and and <clears throat> and things that are worth caring about, but he bemoaned them out out of context. So when you send your child to work in a factory, it's because it's better than the alternative. And because progress happened so quickly in the industrial revolution, uh, and because people have memories of goldfish, uh, they forget how few generations ago it was that a large percent of your children that you had when you were a subsistence farmer just died. They just died. You had to have a lot of kids because a bunch of them died. They died of disease, starvation often. Life was hard. Um, they died. So, you know, <clears throat> working under horrible conditions but living, that was a step up. And obviously that wasn't going to last forever. The free market mostly did away with child labor before, before government reforms. But, of course, government takes uh, credit for that. Anyway. They viewed this as unethical. They said there's a whole bunch of unethical problems. 
Um, now, keep in mind that these these early progressives were also eugenicists. We won't get into this too much, but they were they had this idea of creating a superior stock of tax cattle and to weed out the unemployable. <clears throat> and unemployable was a euphemism for black people or anyone they didn't like. Um, they liked this idea of uh, they minimum wage, for example, was something they liked because specifically they thought it would push unskilled uh, laborers out of work and they wouldn't be able to survive and we would cull the population and end up with the kind of workers that the progressives liked. So those were the progressive. And, you know, it sounds horrible to say that like they're eugenicists and this is the, in, it's all true, but it's also not far-fetched. If you imagine these are the people from that same mentality of the noble and, and clergy class from centuries earlier, this is a, they view you, the third estate as something to be managed, your tax cattle. I mean, their job is to manage and, you know, of course, if you're managing cattle, you want, you know, get rid of the ones that are weak and you want these ones to, you know, give these extra feed and take some feed away from these and make them the way you want. And, you know, if you're making Wagyu beef, you feed them beer and rub their bellies or whatever the hell they do in Japan. Right. It's like that's you're making they're the third estate is the product. And so that's why that's their mindset, because their mindset is to manage you. <laughs> now, the progressives goal here explicitly was to create an administrative state. And what they mean by that is they want to have a body of experts. By the way, I wonder if there's any credentialed experts. They want a body of experts with the power to identify problems, which I'm putting in quotes because they can, you know, whatever, they'll identify something they call a problem, and then take action, govern action to address those problems. They envision a state run by experts, a large bureaucracy with its fingers in everything, managing the riffraff, managing the third estate, managing you peon producers. They're the nobles. Just think of noble as another word for expert. They're the nobles. Nobles need to manage. The experts need to manage. And of course, the progressives, well, hey, where do we get any experts? Hey, look at this. We've got credentials. What do you know? We've got we've got university degrees that say I'm a good at e economics and sociology. I guess I'm an expert. Who'd have thought, right? So um, this, this meant a massive expansion of government, um, the creation of this regulatory bureaucracy, this kind of fourth branch of government, this administrative state. Uh, and ultimately, the, what you need to remember here is this is not just people with ideas trying to make them happen in a free market. This is through the government. And the reason it's through the government, there's only one reason that it's through the government. It's because they need to reintroduce the use of force to manage people. That's it. You don't have to do any of this crap. If you have a great idea for how to run a company and build it successfully, you don't need this progressivism crap. Just go do your idea. And if the way you manage is better and you've got, you know, these kind of shares and these kind of people and this is how you treat your worker, fine. You'll be successful in the free market. The reason that the progressives needed government because they needed the force of go government has a monopoly on the use of force. And they needed that. They needed their swords back. The nobles needed their swords back so they could come slash you open if you didn't give them enough grain. I mean, to get like visceral about it, they needed the same for the same reason they needed tax collectors or or nobles needed swords hundreds of years ago. It's the same reason the progressives needed 
to be married to the government. They needed the, these experts embedded in the government because they needed force. So, <clears throat> some historical highlights of progressivism. <clears throat> really quickly, this is not all of them. These are just some ones that bothered me or I thought of. <clears throat> the end of the 19th century, you have uh, tax-subsidized public schooling starting in all the states. <clears throat> By, and by 1900, 34 of the states have compulsory education laws. Why is that important? Well, because obviously you need to indoctrinate people. This is part of the – if you're managing a tax farm, this is kind of uh, – you know, when you're managing cows, you don't need them to believe certain ideas, right? But when you're managing people, they need to be uh, inculcated uh, to your system. So by 1900, 34 states had compulsory education laws. And then comes <clears throat> probably one of the worst presidents in history – Woodrow Wilson. Uh, he was president from 1913 to 1921. Let's just look at some of the things that happened in 1913 and then 1914. Uh, in 1913, we had the creation of the Federal Reserve. Now, the justification here was that the Federal Reserve was needed to smooth out the business cycle and prevent panics or major recessions. Now, interestingly enough, the other, the other day, Biden said, well, recession's not inevitable. And uh, it's weird how he can be right and wrong at the same time. Right. It wasn't inevitable, but it is now. It wasn't inevitable prior to the government's intervention in the economy. Massive recession or depression wasn't inevitable, but it is now. It is now. Um, so he's wrong, but kind of right. It's not inevitable existentially, but it is given the system that we have. So you had the creation of the Federal Reserve. Um <clears throat> You had uh, the 16th Amendment was ratified. I think it was start. I don't remember when it was passed, maybe in 1909 or something like that, but whatever. The 16th Amendment was ratified in 1913, which allowed for personal income tax. We had no personal income tax. Uh, well, there was a brief period during the Civil War and then got, got rejected, but we had no personal income tax prior to that. So uh, suddenly they were allowed to tax. So just in that year, those two things, Federal Reserve and income tax, both in the same year both under Woodrow Wilson, right? So they commandeered the money supply and they commandeered your paycheck. 1914, you had the Federal Trade Commission, which obviously has its hand in a lot of business. By 1930, every state had compulsory education laws. Um, and, uh, and we can ask ourselves actually at this point, hey, how'd that Federal Reserve thing work out? How'd that smoothing out the business cycles work? Well... <clears throat> and that was what, 1913? Um, <laughs> 16 years later, we had the worst depression ever. Um, so that that worked. Uh, and of course, FDR, uh, another horrible, horrific, horrific president. Um, of course, FDR didn't say, oops, Woodrow Wilson's retarded. We need to get rid of the Federal Reserve. We need to stop meddling in the economy. Let's 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 go back to laissez-faire. No, no, no. We need the Emergency Banking Act, uh, so which will allow the Federal Reserve to issue currency. Um, he issued an executive order in 1933 making owning gold illegal. He introduced the 1933 Banking Act, the Glass-Steagall Banking Act. I don't know if he introduced it, but he signed it. Um, which created the FDIC, increased banking regulations specifically on investment, basically getting the government's hands. And by the way, at this point already, we're not purely in government. We're already in this weird 
world of um, blurring lines between quote private experts and the government and that happens with the creation of the federal reserve so since 1913 they they just went for the jugular it wasn't like they they were like well we need to have um blur the lines between um the experts in i don't know uh farming and the government or whatever they went right for the jugular the money that's where we're going to blur the line, right? So, so he's the banking act. So he's, this is more getting their hands into the economy, a bunch of make work projects. He social security. I mean, the list goes on with this guy on uh, national recovery, recovery administration actually set price limits. I mean, how uncapitalistic, like it's anti it's, it's, it's communist. I mean, he, he set prices. Like you can't have a functioning market, but like he set prices you have the national labor relations act which gets the government involved in the relationship between employers and employees right we can fast forward eventually obviously nixon ends the gold standard um and look you know money uh, you know i go on and on about money it sounds very boring but money is the lifeblood of voluntary association when you exchange value with someone else voluntarily. Money is your medium of exchange. Controlling money puts the government in between every voluntary act of exchange between two individuals. That's what it does, right? It even, I mean, even things that you wouldn't imagine, sex. Well, because the government's involved in money, they're now involved in sex because you're not allowed to exchange money for sex, right? That's how they can, that's how they get into that. They're in charge of the money. Right. So, I mean, that's not how they get their hands in there. But my point is every interaction, every interaction becomes fair game when they get their hands on money. How much you pay employees, how much uh, you charge for things, how like everything you do, how much you make, how much you keep. It also grants the government power to reward, punish, and manipulate the population largely unnoticed. Controlling the money gives them an enormous amount of power. And they went right for the jugular and did that. And the progressives, these, these technocrats, didn't limit their effort to the government and NGOs and think tanks. Uh, they obviously also infiltrated the education system and universities because that gives them broad society influence, but also businesses. Right? Um, we often think of businesses as opposed to the government. <clears throat> And that's naive, right? Um, I've talked before about King Camp Gillette's book, World Corporation, which he wrote in 1910, which describes how to have a corporation that grows and grows and grows until it merges with the government and kind of becomes this one world government. And, you know, more recently, there's a lot of subtle ways that the progressives have um, culturally <clears throat> pushed this idea of... Um, controlling through money um, the distribution of capital, right? Or controlling the distribution of capital through other ways, maybe not just money, but having their hands in everything, having their hands in, um, I'll say, rewarding the right people and discouraging the, quote, wrong people, right? This is, this is how they work. Um, so a lot of people will complain now about this social economy stuff, which I still haven't even gotten to, right? Stakeholder capitalism, 
uh, ESG scores. These are all euphemisms that kind of meant to sound nice and they they sound, they feel new, but they're, they're progenitors to this stuff. I remember when um, <clears throat> several years ago, I, uh, I got acquired and, and the company that acquired us um, had this program where they donated to charities. Uh, and I hated it. I argued against it. I was viewed as such an asshole for arguing against donating to charities. But why did I argue for it? Even if there were charities that I liked, although most of them weren't, uh, there were two main reasons. Um, one was I looked at a bunch of the charities and you'd be surprised if you look into a lot of charities, how much money they spend on lobbying, which means they're spending money to convince men with guns to take more money from me for their cause. Like that's not cool. But also I opposed it because, um, I didn't think it was the role of the employer. How do they know? We don't all share the same views in terms of what cause to support. And as a consumer, I didn't share necessarily share the same cause. I don't want corporations taking some of the profit that I help them earn either as an employee or as a customer and using it for a cause that I may or may not care about. And so, you know, at this company, when, when I was acquired, I argued like, look, why don't you just give the money to the, if you have money you want to spend, just give it to the employees. We can donate it. If we want to donate it, we'll donate it. We'll donate it to what we want. I might donate to the gun owners of America. You might not like that, but like we can donate to whatever causes we want, or we can keep it, but it's none of your business. Right. But this, this conflating, this idea that, well, companies should donate. Why? The reason for the reason why is you can control massive amounts of money when you do it at a company level rather than giving it to individuals who might donate to stuff that you don't necessarily like. This idea of companies giving back to the community is also a progenitor of this stuff, right? The implication here is that something is taken. Oh, companies should give back. They should go do this community service thing and they should give this. Why? What did they take? The implication is that they've they've taken some well they've profited off the community they've created jobs and and a a company that is profitable at least in the free market is productive which by definition means it helps the community it provides jobs and income and generates actually creates wealth that's what it does there's no reason to give back to the community the concept doesn't even make any sense Unless you're not in a free market and you've, if you've stolen your money with guns and swords, then sure. Um, another kind of progenitor to some of this stuff is feminism's focus on economic labor, right? Feminism focused on economic labor. They said what matters is economic equality, right? They ignored the fact that marriage is economic equality, right? Like they, they complained like, oh, the man's going out and working and the woman isn't getting any money for what she's doing at home. Well, she's is. They share money, like what he earns is theirs, right? And and women have for a long time controlled the purse strings in terms of spending. But of course they ignored that and they just said, well, she's not earning anything, so it doesn't count, right? Um, they, they ignored the fact that there's a voluntary exchange happening, which is partly financial, right? Um, and there's a lot of ty types of productive activity that people choose to engage in. Not all productive activity is economically productive. 
right? And if you're free, if you under freedom, it's your choice how to spend your time. You can spend your time engaging in economically productive activity or other productive activity or leisure, right? But if the nobles and the clergy are running a tax farm, they want you to be doing economically productive things. And one of the things that uh, the feminists have been complaining about for a while, and actually I heard in some of the Davos uh, videos, is just complaining about unpaid care work that women do. Predominantly what they mean is, is child raising. Um, now, raising children is productive. Um, it's valid. It's an honorable choice. It's, it's actually one of the most productive things you can do. But it's not measured in economic terms, which means it can't be taxed. <laughs> they can't. They can't get their fingers in there, right? And typically, in a in like a traditional relationship, it is actually paid for in some way, in the sense that like we agree, you take care of the kids, I go earn money. You don't have to worry about paying for food, clothing, or shelter because that's my job. Your job is to do this other stuff. It's, it's an exchange of value voluntarily, but, um, it's not taxable. They don't, they can't, that's half. Think about this. Half the country roughly is, is, is women. If some large percentage of those women have children and don't spend time, uh, in the, in the workforce earning, well, they, those, those are people they can't control. They can't get their grubby little mitts in there. And that's a problem for the progressives and the technocrats. They can't regulate tax or otherwise control that kind of unpaid work or any kind of unpaid work. So what? what's better for them? Well, if they can get the primary caregiver, which is usually a woman, although not always, if they can get that primary caregiver out of the house and into the labor market, they can tax and regulate and control her. And now they also get to create new jobs because someone has to watch the kids. So those jobs can be taxed, regulated, and controlled. They get to touch everyone. And now they get their mitts in everything. That's the reason. That's that's the reason. It's nothing to do with respect for women or caring about women. It has nothing to do with any of that. It is we want to control everyone. And if some people aren't in the labor force, we can't control them. That's it. That's it. Another way, another progenitor to some of this stuff that you see is sin taxes and regulation. I've, I've been opposed to sin taxes and regulation. Often also people think I'm crazy for saying, like, well, you should, you know, the government shouldn't pass regulation on smoking in bars. That's up to the bar owner, right? People get upset about that. But you've got taxes on gas and alcohol and cigarettes. Here in the Bay Area, there's taxes on sugar. Why? These are sin taxes. Right. We have actually regulations on straws. We don't have plastic straws. We have to drink out of those stupid paper straws that disintegrate within like three minutes. It's it's it can all get in your mouth. It's disgusting. This is 2022 the Bay Area. Can't have plastic straws. Right. And these things are called sin taxes because it's actually uh super appropriate if you're if we're going back to thinking about the first and second estates, the nobility and the clergy. It's the clergy deems them sins. These The progressive clergy deems them sins. It's a sin to smoke. It's a sin to drink. It's a sin to, uh, you know, have a sugary drink or use a plastic straw or whatever, or, or not drive a Tesla. If you got to go to the gas station, if you're using petrol, that's a sin, right? The explicit goal of all sin taxes is to control your 
behavior. They're very open about it. This isn't, I'm not ma making this up. You don't have to read between the lines. It's very clear. So the goal for these progressives has always been to be the managers by force of the third estate. And all these seemingly insignificant little steps that I'm talking about are the technocrats marching in the direction of control over you, control over the tax farm, the abolition of individualism, and the reintroduction of the three orders, or at least two of them, the third estate and the lizard people who run the third estate. That's what they're trying to do. And you know, for decades, people that have complained about all these little things beforehand have been ridiculed and vilified, saying, you're crazy. This isn't a big deal. Just let there be us and just give them that little control. It's just a little control. Well, we need it for this reason. We need it for that reason. When you think in terms of principles, you appear to be <laughs> prescient. We're, people that have been arguing about this aren't prescient. I'm not prescient. I just think in terms of principles. And I could say this stuff was stupid and going in this direction a long time ago based on the principles. That's all. This is not rocket science. So back to Davos, where are they now? These are all the little steps. I think it's really important for you guys to know where these people are now because they've progressed, <laughs> progressed in quotes, quite a bit. We're not talking about syntaxes and plastic straw bands anymore. So <clears throat> let's go over this. Break the baritone, uh, you get uh, points for saying syntax error. Uh, you get nerd points for that. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. First, it's important to understand what the World Economic Forum is. Davos is their annual meeting. Um, the World Economic Forum is an international NGO and lobbying organization for its member companies. These are large multinational corporations that support the World Economic Forum and it lobbies on their behalf for their goals. That's what it is. This isn't a bunch of like people who care about humanity, do gooders, although that wouldn't matter. I don't care how much nobles care about humanity, they don't get to be nobles, right? So their goal, the goal of these member companies, is to create a global technocracy, not just in a country, but globally. They want a global technocracy. And they want it comprised of corporations, these them, these large corporations, civil society organizations, which is a euphemism for activists. And they want these people to advise and leverage the power of governments, i.e., they want them to be able, they want to be able to implement their agenda with force and to do that they need to merge with government or blur the lines between government or work closely with governments they want to reintroduce that french concept of the orders the states one and two rule estate three is managed they want to be the managerial class that's what the world economic forum is about the members of the world economic forum these are just some of them i i, I skimmed down the list these are their strategic partners you'll recognize many of these Alibaba, Amazon, Verizon, Coca-Cola, Bain, BlackRock, Cisco, Chevron, Citibank, Dell, Ericsson, GE, Google, Goldman Sachs, Hewlett-Packard, Hitachi, HSBC, IBM, Intel, Johnson & Johnson, JP Morgan Chase, KPMG, MasterCard, McKinsey, Meta, i.e. Facebook, Mitsubishi, Morgan Stanley, Nestle, Open Society Foundations, which is all George Soros' stuff, PayPal, Pepsi, Pfizer, Procter & Gamble, SAP, Sequoia Capital, Uber, UBS, UBS, uh, Unilever, UPS, Western Union, and there's more, but that's the 
That's the ones that I noticed that I just pulled out. So although we can think of this as a lobbying group for these organizations, it it has a very tight relationship with governments. It's not – governments don't shun it like they might shun other lobbying groups or pretend to even shun other lobbying groups, um, especially EU governments. They're not viewed like the NRA, right? There's, there's no one's like, We're, we won't work with the WF. They're evil capitalists. No one says that about the WF, right? They are viewed – uh, to a large extent, they are viewed as the second order, the second estate, the clergy. They are viewed as the moral leaders. Government, I think often many governments view themselves, especially government bureaucrats view themselves as that nobility class. These people are viewed as the clergy, the moral leaders, because they have these civic society, civil society organizations and activists in them, right? And they they, they set moral agendas. So that's how they're viewed. Okay, let's look at this report. <clears throat> so first I was like, okay, what's the social economy? <clears throat> um, I hope they define it. They did, and they did actually define it. So let's, I guess we'll go here. So they introduced this thing, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Introduce the social economy. And I'm going to just read from section 1.1. Now, the beginning here, you'll see there's a recurring theme. Uh, it says the social economy explained drawing on decades of experiences earned by impact driven organizations. The social economy has created a more inclusive and sustainable economic sector. This re there's a recurring theme here of inclusive and sustainable, inclusive, sustainable, inclusive, sustainable. That is peppered throughout this thing. Um, and so, of course, you get to this, this thing we're looking at now, in, introducing a values-driven economy. Now, of course, what you should ask right away is, whose values? <laughs> right? A value implies a valuer and for a purpose. Um, they're not going to tell you the answer to that uh, because – the answer is their values for their purposes. Uh, now, the the top half of this we won't go through. This is just saying, hey, the, uh, there's a variety of different sectors involved in the social economy. There's different legal entities and industries and differences of scale and all different geographies. Okay, whatever. We're for the definition. We're actually concerned with what's the common characteristic. So. If we look at the bottom half of this stupid little graph, here are the four common characteristics that they list. <clears throat> Social economy uh, organizations focus on creating positive societal impact. Now, again, what does that mean? And they'll, they'll admit later in some of the stuff that they are not clear on what that means. I don't think they can be because they don't want to be too overt. But this means positive societal impact means moving society in the direction they want, which is explicitly anti-individualist and anti-capitalist. Long-term vision. Organizations invest most profits back into the cause or target group. Now, of course, this, this doesn't mean any cause, right? 
you can't invest I'm going to invest profits back into the second amendment causes like no it's it's causes that push this creation of a managerial class that will manage the third estate it's it's causes that will push the agenda of a globally managed uh society managed by these people <clears throat> governance organizations are governed democratically now i don't know what that means maybe they mean co-ops uh obviously in a free market you can govern your organization however you want if, if a co-op works the best great do a co-op um and this fourth one here cause first organizations put purpose before profit while employing market means now what does that mean i'm going to read this little clip at the bottom the social economy <clears throat> here i'll just pull this off the screen for a minute the social economy places social and environmental challenges so they threw in environmental now that's considered a social thing as well uh social and environmental challenges <clears throat> and opportunities at the center of economic activity <clears throat> what marks out the social economy as unique oh good we're going to get to some definitions is that it puts purpose before profit social economy actors carry out activities in the interest of their members and beneficiaries collective interest or society at large general interest and are governed accordingly now obviously collective interest is the language of nobility and and uh you know commies and like this is this is how collectivists they literally use the word collective collective interest and general interest well people who want to rule you this is how they do it they say well this is in everyone's interest who says i do i'm klaus schwab or i work for him and i say it's in everyone's interest the end um you don't get to decide what are in your own interests they decide um that's what collective and general interest means this purpose for before profit thing I, I find is funny as well i mean honestly unsafe space puts purpose before profit i mean <clears throat> i i quit my career and and started doing this and like i would love to actually be able to make enough money to sustain this but right now i'm just bleed money i bleed money every month doing this but uh Look, I mean, I guess we could make makeup videos or funny other stupid things. Like we could get more views. We could have a YouTube channel that doesn't get censored. I could put profit first. So we put purpose before profit. Do we count? The answer is no, because the purpose that we put before profit is not the purpose they want. And so it's specific purpose. It's their, it's their specific purpose that matters here. Um, all right. So, uh, oh, I, I, you know, I just want to also point this other thing out. Um, I hate this vilification of profits. Uh, I accept it in a mixed economy where a lot of profits are earned through, uh, pull and unfair advantages and connections and, and all that stuff. Like I get that. I mean, and we're all on the same patch, but, 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 but they mean profits as such. And in a free market, profits are nothing more than a measure of how other people voluntarily value what you've given them. That's all, that's all they are. They're a measure of how much value you've provided to other people by their judgment. All right. And, and by the way, company profits are typically used to expand, which isn't bad for anyone. It's like more jobs and more products and whatever. And personal profits, yes, 
some personal profits will go to buying yachts and expensive jets and, you know, I don't know, uh, ass surgery for the Kardashians or whatever. Like some money will go to that. But mostly once you once you make enough money that you live comfortably and you, uh, you know, like I would probably never have a yacht no matter how much money I wouldn't want a yacht. Like, But once you make enough money to, to live comfortably, most people start using that money to invest. Now, what does that mean? That means it's available to other entrepreneurs and other businesses to do other things. It's not like the money gets burned up and disappears. So profits aren't this like money burning thing where like, hey, there's value and it all went to you and now we don't have any. That's not how it works at all. And that's a naive, uh, I think it's an intentional mischaracterization. So, okay. So, um, let's see, they got, they got this thing, types of organizations involved. This isn't, you know, this, there's not a lot to learn here, but they basically say, I'm not going to read all of it. There's associations, cooperatives, foundations, mutual societies, impact, social impact slash enterprises and nonprofits, which they say nonprofits are the mainstay of organized civil society and seek to advocate, provide services and hold stakeholders to account as they seek to solve societal challenges. Again, societal challenges just means woke agenda crap, right? That's what this means. All right, so you might still want some clarification on this stuff because I do. I'm like, all right, that wasn't super helpful. I mean, it was like, I guess it was a little bit helpful. <laughs> I'm looking for a definition what the hell this social economy is. So here's the part that I think is most clear. This is section 1.3 of this report. The social economy actors share an ambition and are tied together by distinct values to create more inclusive and sustainable economic opportunities characterized by specific ways of working. Now, of course, by inclusive and sustainable, again, they're not really defining those, but we know what these mean uh, in terms of uh, <laughs> inclusive means not white men <laughs> uh, and not the West. Uh, and sustainable basically means green crap or whatever they think is anti-capitalist. Okay, pioneering societal and environmental innovations and co-developing solutions. This, but this is, sounds like, this is such, have you ever read a company's mission statement and it's just gobbledygook? This entire effing report is like this. It's so annoying to read. It's, it's like constant word salad propaganda with abstract concepts. Okay. Empowering and supporting local communities to develop and advance by enhancing employment possibilities in local markets, contributing to, to a sustainable change towards a green economy by using a values-based approach, leading an inclusive digital transition by democratizing and increasing access to digital tools, building resilience to shocks and cushioning the negative impacts of crises on communities, inspiring the private sector to shift towards more inclusive and sustainable business practices. This shared ambition has allowed social economy actors to strengthen their specific attributes and has been proven to generate positive impacts on societies and the environment in different economies around the world. Of course, positive as measured by Klaus Schwab and his minions. <clears throat> but so that's as close as we're going to get to a definition. Richard, I'm actually not even going to talk about CBDC today, but <clears throat> yeah, that's another, that's for another day. Okay. Um, <clears throat> 
So there's your kind of definition. But the, the current system that we have here, according to these guys, this current system includes barriers. And those barriers are predominantly what gets measured um, and reported about companies and organizations. So in other words, they need to know they, – they're one of the, they view one of their barriers as how do we know that you're one of the pod people striving to be the nobility, the lizard nobility people, and not one of these stupid wrong thinkers from unsafe space. How do we know that you're not a wrong thinker? How do we know that you're one of the good ones, right? I guess they could just tell if you've been banned on Twitter, but what if you don't go on Twitter? How do they know? How can they tell? <clears throat> well, here's how they can tell. This guy, you guys will recognize this. Today, companies are increasingly using I'm skipping some stuff. Today, companies are increasingly using non-financial metric, metrics and standards to disclose their environmental, social, and governance, ESG, performance. In September 2020, the World Economic Forum, alongside many private sector partners, launched its Stakeholder Capitalism Metrics Initiative. By the way, when you hear stakeholder capitalism, social economics, uh, ESG, these are all feel-good euphemisms for destroy individualism, destroy freedom, destroy private property. Um, anyway, they uh, launched a stakeholder capitalism metrics initiative to drive convergence among existing ESG frameworks towards a common set of metrics allowing a comparison of ESG data between companies across geographic geographies and industries. Um, so their problem, they don't like that ESG is different between regions. They want to have it standardized so they can measure and they can tell based on your ESG score whether you're one of the good people or one of the bad people. Um, and just, <clears throat> I'm just going to read this little blurb in case people aren't too familiar with ESG. ESG reporting. Reporting of information about corporate performance on sustainability topics started as a stakeholder-driven accountability initiative just over 30 years ago. Today, sustainability disclosure also called ESG, environmental, social, and governance, or non-financial reporting, is more relevant than ever for a wide range of audiences, including policymakers, that's the number one audience, consumers, employees, investors, and civil society organizations. That's actually another number two audience. Leading companies and their boards, which carry the responsibility for all corporate reporting are now aiming not just to be accountable to shareholders, but also to define their purpose and benefit to all stakeholders. Now, you could argue that they should care about stakeholders and in the sense that they should care about their customers. Customers are stakeholders, blah, blah, blah. What this means here, though, is the World Economic Forum has decided what is good, what is the standard of progress, what does progressive mean, what does it mean to be doing good and 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 having a positive impact, and that is measured by these ESG scores. And that's the those are the stakeholders. <laughs> like the stakeholders are, again, the ruling lizard people class. Okay, <clears throat> so the next section here. So that's section one. I'm, I I know this is long, guys. Sorry. You need to know this. Seriously. I, I, this might sound like I'm going slowly. You need to know this. I'm cutting out as much as I can. You need to know this stuff. All right. The second section of this port report is about the potential of the social economy. And this is, again, by the way, right at the top, you see inclusive and sustainable, inclusive and sustainable. This is the recurring theme. Um, this is basically marketing. 
Um, this is all about all the great things that the social economy will do, right? It'll fix income inequality. It'll facilitate inclusion and local empowerment. It'll move us to a green economy. It'll lead an inclusive digital transition. It'll mitigate financial crises. It'll fart rainbows, everything, all right? This is all the great stuff. And there's some examples they have. So here, I'll give you an example of what it will do for us. There's a short example here. Um, this, this is just an example about uh, the youth. The social economy's ambition to lead an inclusive green transition resonates increasingly with young people. In the words of the Independent Commission for Sustainable Equality, <clears throat> quote, we'll have to, who will, will have to shoulder the cost of past generations living beyond the means of the planet. The climate justice generation is inc <laughs> the climate justice generation is increasing <clears throat> increasingly pushing governments and business leaders to create a future built on the principles of solidarity, equality, blah, blah, blah. Um, by the way, just like when you put the word social in front of justice, it undoes the, the meaning of the word justice. When you put the word climate in front of justice, it undoes the meaning of the word justice. It's an anti-philosophical thing. This uh, Something that struck me about this, and the reason I wanted to read it was there's this idea that past generations have been living beyond the means of the planet. Certainly past generations have been living beyond their financial means because they've been borrowing from future generations, but that's not what they mean. And they certainly don't want to address that because they love that. Right. Um, it just strikes me as so odd, right? How do you know what the means of the planet are? Like if you had asked someone 200, 300, 400 years ago, what the, the maximum number of people that can be sustained on a given parcel of land, the answer would be much different than it is today. Well, you know, what, what the earth can sustain is, is, is just, such, it's such a weird, arrogant statement to make. It kind of reminds me, there's a apocryphal quote from Charles uh, Duell, who was the commissioner of the U S patent office in 1899. I don't think he actually said this, but he, he was, he has been purported to have said everything that, can be invented has been invented right it's just kind of like I, what the reason i like that even though it's apocryphal is this it's it's this example of this technic this uh technocrat this this bureaucrat who couldn't be more wrong like can't see has no vision can't see anything being different they can only think linearly this is why futurists are so bad at predicting the future technologically um you know innovation moves in these big leaps at these at these intervals that aren't necessarily predictable and it's just it's to make a statement like this i just found odd but i won't linger on it okay so so we, we, that can be the end of section two we don't have to read anymore so you read section two the potential of the social economy farting rainbows it's great so you might be thinking to yourself oh my god how do we unlock this amazing potential because that's what you're supposed to be thinking right now so if you're not you're not getting it now, the shorter answer here is, well, we need a ruling ruling class. And first, actually, we need to blur the line between governments and multinational corporations because corporations are the experts and governments have the guns, so they need to get married, right? Let's read section part of section 3.2 here. Uh, to unlock the full potential of the social economy, a greater level of trust, mutual understanding, and collaboration between government, business, and societal actors is required. Yes. Then they go on to talk about all the great things this collaboration can do. 
in these videos, some of these videos that I watched, and particularly this one, uh, these people bragged, bragged about the cooperation between large multinational corporation and governments during COVID. About how great it was, how, 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 what a success it was that these large corporations got in bed with government and were able to save us from COVID. That was, that's, that's their view of what happened. Now, as an aside here, in this report, <clears throat> COVID is cited several times as a one of the causes for, for increased wealth inequality and the economic woes that we're experiencing now. And this entire thing, every time they talk about it in the videos that I saw and in this entire report, the the citation of COVID as a, as a reason for this is done with zero, zero self-awareness that it was government policy supported by these very experts, these same progressives, these same people. It was their policy that was the cause. It wasn't COVID. It wasn't a virus that did this. It wasn't a virus that transferred mass amounts of wealth to Amazon and took it away from small businesses. It was the technocrats, the experts. It was their response to COVID that did it which if I'm being cynical was intended because it creates another crisis that they're now exploiting. They're using this to say, oh my God, the economy is a mess. And now we need stakeholder capitalism and the World Economic Forum even more, right? So, <sighs> that's what we gotta do. We gotta blur the line, get these people in bed, governments and, because nothing bad ever happens when governments get in bed with multinational corporations, right? I mean, can you imagine how much life would be better if Jeff Bezos could point guns at you? I mean, really, we don't even really have to go into it. Um, so next, the question is, all right, who, who gets to implement this? Who are the actors? Uh, and there's, there's this list of actors, governments, businesses, Social social investors, research and academia, civil society and organizations, social economy actors, multilateral organizations, <clears throat> which is like IMF and World Bank and that kind of stuff. By the way, uh, I was thinking about this when I read this. I, you know, World Bank, IMF, you know, regional development banks. It says here they cover part of government budgets in many countries. And I thought to myself, you know how. You know how there's this trope of, which I think is a correct, uh, of uh, the Democrats have created urban plantations through their welfare and their um, <clears throat> economic uh, and, and cultural manipulation of poor people in urban areas. They've created these urban ghettos. They've created plantations um, and kept them on the teat of government. These multi... <laughs> These multilateral organizations like the IMF, they do this on a global scale. We keep entire countries on the teat of, I don't say the EU, but like large first world conglomerations of, of, of countries that have agendas. We, we keep them on the teat. We like subsidize their governments. Why? What does that do? Right? We could just be dropping contact, you know, copies of the, U.S. Constitution and John Locke and, and Thomas Jefferson writings and the Anti-Federalist Papers and, you know, <clears throat> along with some translation dictionaries for people and say, hey, here, 
<laughs> here's the answer. But no, we have to subsidize things, which uh, often destroys local economies and keeps them uh, beholden to you. Again, if I were cynical, I might suggest that that's intentional. Um, okay, so what do they want these organizations, governments, this list people? What do they want them to do? How do they? And this is this is the part you you know you really need to pay attention to here because we so, so we hear all the lovely things that that social. Uh, the social economy can do. We can see that it's this woke bullshit. We see what their desire is. Uh, we see that they want to be the ruling class of lizard people. <clears throat> what specifically do they want to do? What's their agenda? Well, you don't even have to be a conspiracy theorists. So they, they, they lay it out. <clears throat> their agenda can be implemented in two shifts. I guess the word shift is better than phases. Phases sound like it's an evil plan. Phase one, phase two. It's shift one, shift two. <clears throat> All right. Shift one is advance the social economy. How do you do that? There's five policy priorities. Here they are. I'll read some highlights from these. <clears throat> the first policy priority. Recognize the social economy and build supportive regulatory frameworks. Now, I'm not, by the way, I'm not going to read their text here. I'm just going to summarize here. Um, so they want to build supportive regulatory frameworks. Now, all manipulation of economies, uh, <clears throat> including business regulations, right, is a form of stacking the deck, right? Any economic manipulation is a form of stacking the deck. It's a form of using force because obviously you can't manipulate a comedy if you can back it up with guns, right? No one will follow your regulation or your tax or whatever if you can't, you know, shoot them for not doing it. So it's it's a, it's a way of using force to influence who wins and loses in the game and to pretend that there's still a free market or some semblance of a free market, but really you're influencing who the winners and who the losers are through regulatory frameworks it's using force to reward certain behavior and punish other behavior and of course this is all based on the premise that you would can guess by now which is well if we leave you to your own devices you'll make the wrong decisions so we have to be we have to force you we have to manipulate the playing field so um so that you make the right decisions we have to be in charge of the tax farm right now with respect to a regulatory framework uh for the social economy um, what they would want to do here then is to make it easier for people or businesses. Uh, and I'm not going to draw a distinction between people and businesses because people start businesses and man businesses and work, you know, uh, <laughs> get employed at businesses and all that. Make it easier for people or businesses to that behave the way the nobles approve of. Right. So if you're a good wokey business, it's easier for you to succeed. If you're a bad wrong thinky business, well, we're going to make it harder or impossible for you to succeed. We're going to try and drive you out of business. That's what a supportive regulatory framework for the social economy means. Right? It means PayPal doesn't work for you because you're a wrong thinker. Uh, okay, their second, <clears throat> their second uh, policy priority, they call them. The second policy priority... <clears throat> Create incentives for funding, taxation, and investment. 
says here, governments should review tax frameworks historically reserved for nonprofit organizations and apply them more broadly to organizations based on their purpose rather than their legal profit status. So they're saying, hey, I might be Procter and Gamble, but I'm woke, so I should have nonprofit tax status. That's what that means. That's what that means. So who pays taxes? Only the non-wokies. We pay taxes. They don't pay taxes. That's what that means. To grow the sector, the social economy needs easier access to long-term investments and funds. Governments can support this by making grants and public-funded investments into the social economy. And by de-risking private funding. Leveraging public funds to de-risk private funding. So what does that mean? Well, look, whenever you're talking about uh, providing incentives or or de-risking funding with public money, all my, I know this is remedial for some of you. All money that governments spend, all of it comes at the expense of the economically productive people in society. It comes at your expense. It comes at the expense of that third estate. There's three basic ways that it comes at that expense. You could get nuanced and say there's others, but these are the three main ways. It's taken directly by force, i.e. taxed. It's printed. They print money, which just destroys the purchasing power of your money, which is another way of robbing you of your productivity. Or I think probably the most egregious of all is they borrow it. And, and borrowing it, people don't lend it without a promise to do number one or two, tax or print, to future generations. So it's to your kids and grandkids they do that stuff. So all this like create incentives and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it punishes. It's going to punish the wrong thinkers. It's going to give money to or, or exempt from taxes the wokey corporations, but but obviously they're not going to reduce spending. So where do those where does that money get made up? Well, they print it or they take it uh, from non wokies or they borrow it or whatever. Okay, next one: expand education and research. I mean, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, for the for the social economy to be fully unlocked, governments can educate young people about the social economy in schools. This is just indoctrination. We don't need to get into that. It's kind of obvious. Um. The next one says procurement and access to markets. Make public and private procurement channels more inclusive. There's that word again. Access to public and private markets is a key policy lever for advancing the social policy lever. I love this language. Uh, for advancing the social economy. Through public procurement. By the way, the reason policy lever bothers me, it, I mean, the whole, all of this bothers me. The, pay attention to language like this. They're playing a game. This is a little, they're, they're, they're having a grand old time. This is a board game. They're like, they're just like, they get to design a game and like, ooh, we get people to do this and give this incentive to these two people over here and take this away and syntax them for this and blah, blah, blah. Like, they're, they're playing a game with your life. Through public procurement, the public sector can buy goods and services from social economy actors that deliver social and environmental value. Government procurement has the capacity to unlock and create markets. Moreover, government can create fiscal incentives for private sector to procure from the social economy. So um, 
again, any anything like this is done at the expense of more economically productive. So if government procures services or goods from the wokey companies, it's done at the expense of the more economically productive companies, right? Um, a great example here is, and this isn't about wokeness, but it's about how the government can affect markets like this. Um, there was the baby formula shortage recently. Uh, and um, there's basically in the U.S., I think there's basically only like three major suppliers of baby food. It's a very small uh, number of suppliers, which is why when they <clears throat> when they run out of supplier, they had a problem. Suddenly, there's no baby food. There's not like it's not a very uh, fragmented market. It's very centralized. There's not many of them. Why? Well, one of the reasons, aside from a bunch of regulations, which which do have a big impact, um, one of the reasons is because um, the WIC program, <clears throat> uh, which obviously is a government program, um, has preferred suppliers, and those three are their suppliers. So they've created businesses for those three, and if you're not one of those suppliers, it's much harder to break in. So they've they've kind of created this market for those. So when when the government doles out money to Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing, right, um, they're creating companies that have expertise in airplanes or missiles or whatever. Um, they're creating a market there that isn't a free market. Right. And the same thing happens with baby food. Right. Um, so this is how this is how they can do that. And this is how, according to this, right, they, they say they can unlock and create markets and create fiscal incentive incentives for the private sector to procure from the social economy. Why is that? Well, because if you procure from the social economy, then you have access to this. Right. So that's what that is. <clears throat> All right. So that's oh, sorry, there's a number five I forgot. Uh, collect, measure, and visualize social impact data. This isn't super exciting, um, but uh, basically, I don't even know if I really want to read this because we're running late. Basically, they want data, like we were talking about ESG and that kind of stuff. They want they want this data to be standardized, and they want governments to measure it uh, so that if it's measured by a bunch of governments and it's standardized, the Central Committee of commies can approve or disapprove, right? That's what they want. All right, so that's shift one. Let's go to shift two. There's only two policy priorities in shift two. Or phase two. <clears throat> I'd better call it phase two. The two policy priorities in phase two <clears throat> uh, are here. One, enhance accountability and adopt taxonomy. And this is related actually to what we just talked about. The accountability of business practices can be strengthened by legislation that requires companies to include non-financial statements as part of their annual public reporting obligations. Again, why the government is involved in how companies report anything, uh, I was going to say it's beyond me, but it's not. I know why. But like should have opposed the SEC It's from the very beginning. It's none of the government's business to get involved in how companies report to their shareholders. But it is now, and now they want to have this. And by the way, speaking of the SEC, they've actually talked about requiring ESG. I don't know if they've implemented it yet. They might have, uh, if someone in chat knows. But they've talked about implementing this and requiring ESG. Uh, these should include the impacts of companies and their value chains on the environment, their employees, and broader society. <clears throat> Governments need to develop a supportive taxonomy system for sustainable and social activities. Such a taxonomy or common classification system would provide company investors and policymakers 
with appropriate categories for defining which economic activities can be considered environmentally sustainable and socially responsible. So basically, <coughs> shift shift two here, the first point in shift two, the first policy priority is, is not just to do this with the social economy, but to move this into the mainstream and have these measurements apply to the mainstream economy. So everything's social economy, right? Um, and the second one here is support innovative, innovation and participatory business models. Um, governments are encouraged to create a supportive ecosystem to catalyze social innovation and inspire participatory business models. Collaboration between social economy actors and mainstream businesses can help create more innovative purpose-led business models for those mainstream companies to adopt. Collaboration between mainstream businesses and social economy actors can result in a range of outcomes, including the incubation of new social enterprises. Governments can play a key role in facilitating these exchanges via platforms, networks, and supporting systems with specific mandates to strengthen such collaboration. Man mandates to strengthen. So this is more uh, manipulation of the economy stuff specifically. Um, well, all manipulations of the economy, keep this in mind, all economic manipulations are manipulations of relationships between people. Two people want to voluntarily interact. Any economic manipulation is a manipulation of that voluntary relationship between those two people. That's what this is. So here's the plan, right? That's it. Now notice here, here's their, here's their thing. We'll show, we'll show their graphic. There's their plan. There's all that stuff visually in a fun little marketing graphic. Uh, impact in the upper right, scope and scale, because they want other axes and that works, <laughs> whatever. They want to be able to plot some stuff and make a graph. This is a useless graph, but here we go, right? And they say, okay, here we, here's, our, here's all the things. You can see the white dots are the five shift one things, and then the two dark blue dots are the shift two uh, priorities that we talked about. <clears throat> Now notice that these are these are wannabe nobles telling government what to do. That's what they want. These are the progressive technocrats. These are the experts. Let me just read a little section that goes with the graph that you're looking at in front of you. Beyond policy design, governments are in a unique position to create supportive ecosystems for social economy actors by sharing information and data, providing and demanding training to enhance the understanding of all actors about the needs of social economy actors and institutionalizing networks to scale up the capacities needed to catalyze the social economy. Why are governments in a unique position? You guys know why are governments in a unique position? Because they have monopoly on force. They can shoot you. That's that. That's it. That's the only reason. That's why they're in a unique position. Now, <clears throat> look. I don't. <clears throat> that's the end of them. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go through this report anymore. I don't want to be hyperbolic about this, but this should terrify you. Uh, and this stuff is not, this is not coming from out of blue. This is not coming from left field. This is the culmination of counter-enlightenment ideology 
the counter-enlightenment ideology of the progressives. This has been a long, slow march to get here. This is not new. This is not going to go away tomorrow. This is over a hundred years old. And this is, they are at the point now where actual implementation of this is looking like it's on the horizon. They can actually achieve their goals. That's what we're seeing. And you might be freaking out about what these goals are, but these were the goals 100 years ago, 150 years ago. These are the same goals. They just had to get here, and they and they got here. And they got here <clears throat> in Europe uh, before they got here in the U.S., but they're here. What they want is a recreation, just to reiterate, what they want is a recreation of this class structure that I talked about that I used France as the example of, but this old class structure. Rather than a classless, you can't really have a classless structure in the sense of like you always end up with some hierarchy, but in a in a individualist, private property, free, uh, enlightenment society, you end up with a hierarchy of merit. And obviously merit in different aspects and different issues. That's the hierarchy you end up with. Um, they want a class structure. They want the nobility and the clergy to manage that third estate. They want to bring back those first and second orders. They want to be the administrators and the technocrats. They want to create this global administrative state. This isn't conspiracy theory. This is what they have written. It's very clear. And the question you can ask is, well, if they're creating this global administrative state, what are they administering? The answer is you. They're administering you. If that doesn't sound like freedom, there's a reason for it. Now, obviously, first they're doing this in Europe. Like many bad things, they start in Europe, although not all bad things uh, <laughs> start in Europe. Um, but they'll get to the U.S., and this, look, this needs to be fought at its very foundation, and I think the only way to do that is to advocate for laissez-faire on principle. You don't have to use the language laissez-faire, but advocate for individualism. Leave us alone. And I've been thinking about this, like, how do you counter this stuff? I mean, first of all, maybe we're going to have to get on a lifeboat as we've talked about before on this show, and, and we can't actually save a large geographical area, but if we're going to counter this stuff, if we're going to fight this, I think you could, step one, you could divest from companies that are members or, or strategic partners of the World Economic Forum. Just divest. Get your money out of there. Check your funds. Check your 401k. Check your IRA. You shouldn't hold Amazon stock. You shouldn't hold Procter & Gamble stock or Meta stock. You shouldn't hold them. And maybe divest and explain why. I don't know. I was thinking about this. Tell me if tell me if I should do this. I was thinking about making a form letter. So I had my daughter copy down in a spreadsheet all of the companies that are strategic partners to the World Economic Forum. So I have a spreadsheet of them all. I was thinking about making a form letter that you could just send and be like, I'm divesting from your company and this is why. Right. Um, I think we need to do that. If you're in Europe, you know, a Brexit, get the hell out of the EU because the EU loves this stuff. They are all over this. They are in bed with the World Economic Forum. 
Uh, so Brexit was a good idea. Um, I don't know what else we can do. I've, you know, I've been toying with the idea of creating like a counter ESG score, like the, the, the anti ESG score, uh, where, you know, companies like, oh, we're dedicated to paying as little taxes as possible and laissez-faire economics and reduction of government. And we're not going to, you know, lobby for regulations and whatever. I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the right thing to do, but something needs to be done here. And, um, I'll write a form letter if you guys think that's a good idea. Um, and I'm, I'm maybe even, like I said, I'm, I'm open to the idea of trying to work with some other people to create a counter ESG score or something. There is a guy, let me look up his name. <clears throat> I'm going to try and have him on a show at some point. Uh, his name is Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, and he's coming out with an anti ESG ETF called Strive Capital Management. Apparently that's coming out this fall. Um, so I'm going to try and talk to him. But, you know, you've got a lot of you probably, if you're like a, most people, you probably have money sitting in a 401k or you have a, you have mutual funds or whatever. Uh, get the hell out. Get the hell out at least of the WF companies, the WEF companies, and explain why. Right? And if you want a form letter, I'll, um, I'll do a form letter, but you got to tell me. I'm not going to do it if no one wants it. All right. So... <clears throat> Thank you guys for sitting with me. This has been almost two hours, so it's a good thing I didn't say it was going to be short because uh, it's not short. It didn't turn out to not be short. Um, I I think I'm not I'm not trying to toot my own horn and say that this particular presentation is awesome or anything, but the information in here is crucial. Share this with people if they don't know what's going on. Right, people hear about the Great Reset or whatever, but reading this and seeing their agenda and what what their plan is um, and what they mean by this, I think is super important. People need to understand that this is what's going on and that these this is what these companies are doing. They are they are the nobles. They're trying to be the nobles to manage the third estate. They want to bring back that kind of a system rather than the enlightenment system of, hey, individualism, liberty for all. So anyway, thank you all for watching. Um, I do appreciate you spending your, your evening with me. Uh, just as a heads up, um, next, I'm going to be out for the next two weeks. Um, I'm actually taking a vacation. We're doing a little road trip. Um, I might try and record a show on the road, but only if I got something that's, that I, that's easy to talk about and to do on the road. And to, so to do that, and, you know, in the past, you guys have sent topics that you want discussed or questions. Uh, I enjoyed doing that. We did a couple shows like that. Um, if you've got topics or questions you want addressed, um, put, put them in discord, put them in YouTube comments or somewhere. If I get enough of them, uh, and if I have time, I'll try and do a show on the road or whatever. Otherwise, I'm actually I'm gone for I'll be on narrative distance will be happening on Monday, but then no dangerous thoughts for two weeks because I'll be out. Um, so anyway, enormous thank you to um, those of you who continue to support us financially. You can join everyone at unsafespace.com to do that. Um, get your name in the credits and all that kind of cool stuff. Oh, let's look at our poll. Let's end the poll. I forgot we can't can't leave without ending the poll. So. Uh, let's see. Poll results. 
conservatives, 43% of you, this is the winner, 43% said conservatives are controlled opposition. 26% said they lose because they're incompetent. 23% said they lose because they're unprincipled. And 6% of you think they do a fine job. <laughs> so I don't know who you guys, who is that? Someone say, I don't know who, who voted that. Uh, so, yes. Thank you, Greg the Baritone. Quotes George Carlin and says, it's a big club and you ain't in it. That's a good summary of the World Economic Forum. So, uh, token minority report tomorrow with Alex and Beverly. Uh, check that out. As always, love suggestions, feedback, topics, all that kind of stuff. And as I mentioned, if you want to be uh, hearing dangerous thoughts in the next couple of weeks, I need some uh, suggestions for topics or questions. I'll make it easier for me while I'm on the road. All right. Take care, everyone. Have a good night. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production does not meet WHO health and safety standards. Please report to a United Nations sanitization center immediately. Association with the following individuals is strictly prohibited. Experts who benefit from printing money agree that printing money does not cause price inflation. Trust me, just two more weeks to slow the spread of monkeypox. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.